verses 18 through 25. And guess what? We will uh, finish up Hebrews today. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to uh, probably go to Acts next. That's what I think. And um, maybe a week in between uh, for some miscellaneous kind of things that are on my mind. But uh, Hebrews chapter 13, beginning there with verse number 18. And uh, as we finish the chapter here. Let's do this together today. Let's stand as we show reverence to God in reading from his word. Hebrews chapter 13, begin with verse number 18. And there the Bible says, pray for us that, uh, pray for, for us, hope everybody's okay. Pray for us for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably, but I especially urge you to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in a few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints, those from Italy, greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its uh, truth and help to us. We pray by your uh, spirit who inspired it that you might speak to us this morning. And God, that we could be changed and transformed. God, we need strength to continue to follow you and to give evidence of your life through our own living. And so we pray, God, that you will sustain us and help us and help us to listen. And God, help us to uh, order our lives in obedience to the one who loved us so much that he gave his own son for us. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, as I say, uh, we will go in the next week or so into the book of Acts. And I think what we've looked at in the last couple of weeks has been a good segue uh, from uh, Hebrews to Acts because we're going to talk about it, but the word Acts, in Greek it's praxis. The idea is the practice of our faith, the the, uh, way that the disciples were taking what they had learned from Jesus, Jesus and living it and spreading it in the first century world. So it will be helpful to us these last couple of weeks. We saw last week that the writer said to us that we were to go outside the camp, if you remember. We said that where Jesus suffered was outside the city, where they took the uh, animals, burnt body that was sacrificed on the great day of atonement, was outside of the city, outside of the camp. And the scripture said, you also go outside the camp bearing his reproach. And so we take Christ's life, and we said it's easy to live an insular kind of existence where we get inoculated against the way that the world is infected by sin, and we forget, hey, I was there once myself. I was living a life that was separated from God in disobedience, and yet we found peace in Christ. And the scripture says, okay, well, you take that life and that peace that you've experienced, and you allow God to to, uh, use you out in the world. And so we'll continue to see that in Acts, but that's what we saw last week. We bear his reproach. We carry his suffering 
into the world, in ourself, in our own life, identifying with Christ and his gospel. Kent Hughes, one of my favorite books was written by a couple, Kent and Barbara Hughes, and it, uh, the, the book is titled Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. And every pastor, my former pastor, one of, uh, one of my former pastors recommended that book, in fact, uh, mentored me and some other guys through it. And it just teaches you to look at ministry in a different way instead of uh, looking at it only in what you can tell in the most obvious quantifiable things. We look at our faithfulness. We look at our, our, our uh, character. We look at our life. And so Kent Hughes said in that book, believe what you believe. Believe what you believe. Well, you say, well, that sounds easy enough to believe what I believe. But what he's saying is the things that we would profess convictionally, he says, live that out in your actual life. That's where it breaks down for a lot of us. It's a lot, it's a lot easier to talk about our Christian commitment than it is to be faithful to it in the practical areas of our life. He says, believe what you believe. In other words, commit it to practice. Live it out. And so that's our struggle and our challenge. And in this message today, I want to think about that, a real-world faith. What does it look like to have a faith that we uh, not only have in here when it's easy to praise and others are praising, but when we go back out into the difficult situations that you will most certainly face before the week is out, maybe before the day is out. So how do we do that? How do we live a life that's shaped by faith in Christ and the practical, everyday kind of uh, realities that, that we'll have in our life? So we're going to look at four questions this morning to help us think about that, how we have a, a kind of a real-world faith. The first question I think we can see in the passage is, does our faith evoke urgency and passion? We see this Whoever the writer is, most people don't would say, we don't really know. He has some of the same relationships as like the Apostle Paul. But some people say the eloquence of the letter, maybe it's Apollos. But we really don't know the writer. We do know who inspired the writing, the Holy Spirit. But this person has been separated from a congregation of people that he cares about, he wants to see, and he expresses that in this letter, and we see in his life that there's an urgency and a passion to live the gospel out, to live for Christ in the world. And as I was looking at this passage, the uh, verse 18, we could understand this way. He says, Though we are confident having a good conscience in everything, pray for us yet that we may conduct ourselves commendably. And, and that's a prayer wish. He's saying for these people, you in your praying will help me with my own objective to live a life that could be commended before God, that would please God. And so he's urging their prayer for him as a missionary. He was a missionary pastor. We don't know. We know he's a theologian because he spent 13 chapters talking about deep spiritual realities. But he says, you're praying it's helpful to me, and I need your prayers. And he, he, he says, basically, I have a good conscience. You know, Paul did talk about that in the New Testament. He says, I don't know anything against myself, but God is my judge. God may know things against us, and it's easy for all of us to have blind spots, that's for sure. Blind spot is uh, hard to see. Why? Because others can see it, but you can't. 
But he, he says, I, in my conscience, I think that I'm following Christ acceptably. But he says, I want to live a commendable life, so pray for me. You know why he says that? Because you can lose in your, in your living what you can't make up for in your talking. That's why. It's easy to lose in our living what it's hard to make up for in our conversation, our talking. My life can undermine my message. So living with a good conscience is a prayer-worthy goal. Their prayers help sustain the high calling in these missionaries' lives. Ian Bounds said, Prayerless people have never been used of God. Ouch, Ian Bounds, why do you want to step on our toes like that? He says, prayerless people have never been used by God. In other words, if we want to be used by God, we have to be people who make space in our life for prayer. Prayer prayer affirms our confidence that God is there and he cares. And intercession affirms that we care. You know, we know that God cares. We pray to a God that we know is concerned for us and cares, but intercession, our praying for others, is evidence that we care too. We take time to pray for people. Many men in the Bible, when we, you read the Bible, and especially as we look at the Old Testament, well, not only the Old Testament, because we see it in the lives of some New Testament uh, uh, people as well, but we, we see that they didn't finish well. We think about like Solomon, who in his lifetime, people said, this is the, the wisest man in the world. People came from all over to sit at his feet, but the way his life ended up caused the kingdom of Israel to be destroyed and split in two. He didn't finish well. What about King David? Man after God's own heart didn't finish well right in the end his decision making undermined the kingdom and caused there to be this trend toward the the people's isolation from God and their independence and their destruction ultimately their alienation and uh, being exiled into Assyrian Babylon it was a progression and so attrition is what happened if you're Attrition means a gradual wearing away. You know, one thing I've noticed uh, as I get older, it's like I have feet of clay. I knew that already, but I thought about that this week, that we're making this long, long journey with feet of clay. Feet of clay, we're humans, right? That's what that saying means, that we are, we're fallible. It's a wonder that everybody's life doesn't end in disaster. If it's not for the grace of God that sustains us and the community that surrounds us and God's work in our heart by His Spirit to uphold us. And the writer in this passage says, pray for me. And I would say the same thing. I, I pray for you. Pray for me. Pray for one another. That God will keep us and that He'll hold us and Protect us. Leading is a calling with moral qualifications that a leader intrinsically knows. Even if the Bible didn't tell you, hey, you need quality uh, character qualities to serve and lead, you would know it intrinsically. You would know, I can't do this. If these things aren't in place, I'll be a hypocrite. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, 
guard your heart because out of it proceed all the issues, all the concerns of life. Above all else, protect, guard your heart because out of it proceed or spring all the issues of life. Prayer affects life. Real faith is praying faith. The writer was limited, he says, we don't know by what distance because, you know, we know that it was hard to get hundreds of miles in the first century. Maybe he was imprisoned. It sounds like he was very familiar with other people who had been in prison, and maybe he was because that happened with some frequency in the first century that people would be locked up because they would proclaim the gospel and not stop. Whether it's better to obey you than, uh, than to obey, obey men than God, you decide. But for us, they would say, we can't help but proclaim the gospel. And so they would disobey government and uh, spread the word of Christ and end up incarcerated at times because of that. And he, there's some distance, something that affects his connection to them, but he believed that prayer could overcome it. So he says, pray for us, that, that we can be with you. Robert Hall said, prayer is the sovereign remedy. There's urgency that he has to be restored to them the sooner. And so faith didn't uh, look like some minor part of their experience. Their confession of worship and the exaltation of Jesus with, uh, was there alongside, aligned with their passion to live for him. They worshipped, it was obvious in their way of living. So that's a good question for us to let percolate with ourselves. How about my own passion? Does my confession that I live for Christ, is it obvious in the passion and the urgency with which I live my everyday life? But a second question we see in the text, does our faith forward God's agenda in the world? God has an agenda in the world. God has a mission for this world just like he did in their world. There are things that God wants done in this world that he's going to use you and me to do. We're his hands, we're his feet. We're the body of Christ. So with Christ as our head, our, our Lord works through us, the members. We saw this when we were in 1 Corinthians, the fact that we're... There's no body that isn't useful to God in his kingdom if we put ourselves at his disposal. Whatever gifts and talents we have and whatever experiences we have, God uses those to glorify himself and to help the world know him. So the writer in this passage, the Holy Spirit inspires this to say, the God of peace he describes who this God of peace is. That God of peace is the one who brought up the Lord Jesus from the dead. He resurrected Jesus. He raised him bodily, which is the only kind of resurrection there is. Resurrection is bodily. Jesus died in the place of people suffering on account of our guilt and our sin. The righteous one dying in the place of all the unrighteous. And the Bible says God raised him from the dead, the God of peace, the one who brings peace, even through the act of atonement and resurrection. He says that's the God who we're talking about here, the one that raised Jesus. And he, he says Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. He's our shepherd. 
He's the one that sometimes whacks us with a rod. I don't like that, but I need it sometimes. He's the shepherd of the sheep. He's also the one that has compassion and nurture and love and protection for us. Sometimes he whacks me because he's trying to protect me. But he loves us. He nurtures us. He cares for us. He says, this is the God who by the blood of the eternal covenant equipped us for every good thing. That eternal covenant, this, this promise that God made. I'm going to bless the world through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then through the Messiah, through Israel, then the Messiah, and then the Messiah is going to bless the whole world. The covenant that God made. His promise to us is cleansing and pardon and forgiveness. That's the covenant. Grace, goodness that flows through Jesus. He says, this is my covenant with you. We symbolize it in the Lord's table, in communion, the broken body of Jesus given for us, the blood of Christ shed for us. He says, this is the covenant that we're talking about. And he says, that God who we're describing in this way equips us for every good work. He equipped us to perform his will, empowering us through Jesus for his glory. The good God who equips us to do his will, in doing his will, will reflect his character, be empowered by his work through Jesus. This is what he's saying to us. He promises. And it will always be to glorify God on earth. So I think about common things, everyday things that we do for the right motive can become acts of worship. I think uh, Jesus explained this in a kind of an obscure a parable, a teaching. I always like this. I get it, what Jesus was saying. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast the woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. I always like this illustration because I think what Jesus means is that we take our life and our influence and we put it out there into this big giant world around us, and stealth, uh, stealthily, that's how it happens, secretly, quietly sometimes it spreads and it uh, permeates. That's what our influence is. God takes your life around the people that you're, you're with and he uses it, it spreads, and it, it goes into these little quiet places. It becomes infectious. That's what yeast is. It infects the, the uh, dough. And causes it to be yummy, right? That's what happens. It mushrooms into pervasive good, escalates, broadens, proliferates. It proliferates like pickleball. <laughs> That's a racket sport joke. I'm like, I play tennis, and so pickleball is everywhere now. Noisy, people talking, playing pickleball. That's what we need the gospel to do. We need the gospel to spread like pickleball, like kudzu. That's God's purpose. He says the kingdom of heaven is like that. It's like yeast that we put it in there and it begins to work into everything through you, through me, wherever we are. Everything gets touched with the residue of God's purpose and what's associated with his purpose, the meaning. And so all that we do when we read this passage 
verses uh, 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is pleasing. Look at what it says there. Where? In his sight. He sees. He knows. Everything that we do is before the eyes of the one with whom we have to do. That's how the writer put it earlier in Hebrews. What I'm doing is before God's sight. What you're doing is before God's sight all your life, all the days of your life. Mine too. To do His will, when we pray, Your will be done, which is how Jesus taught us to pray, Your will be done, what we're really saying is, God, I agree to take part in Your mission in the world. What we're saying when we pray, Your will be done, is, God, I surrender. God, I commit. I surrender, I commit. We may not fully understand everything that uh, that means and where it might take us. I certainly did not. I didn't know, you know, that God would say, hey, move away from your family and live away from mostly your whole life. I didn't know that when we said yes. I just know that that's how Jesus says we're to pray. Pray, He says, pray this way. Your will be done. I don't know his will all the time. I know some things that are very obvious because the Bible makes them very clear. But I know that when I pray that way, I'm acknowledging and agreeing to take part in his mission in the world. Not knowing everywhere it takes me. We just keep offering our yes to God. I think about... Saul of Tarsus, his story, how the Bible says that on his way to persecute Christians, this, is, this story comes around again and again, that he, he, he is on his way to persecute Christians. He's interrupted by God and redirected. Violently, almost, it seems, interrupted, redirected. On his way to persecute Christians, the, Jesus comes to him in a bright light and a loud voice, and he, he says, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, of, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And Paul asked the two questions that every person who's serious about Jesus must ask. He says, who are you and what do you want me to do? Who are you and what do you want me to do? Those are the two big questions. We get those right and we will be okay. So he answers that question of who he is, and he surrenders to be baptized. He he says, this is the Lord. And Paul, Saul of Tarsus, immediately submits to be baptized and is baptized there in Damascus. And then he, he is told, here's my mission for you. You're going to proclaim my name before kings even. And, of course, he does. He, everywhere he goes, he's proclaiming this message of Christ's powerful resurrection and the forgiveness of sins that he, he offers. I think about, like, understanding God's will, how subjective it sometimes feels. We wake up each day with a yes in our heart to God. That's what we should do. We wake up every day with a yes in our heart to God. And then we figure it out. My former pastor used to say, if you were driving at night, you're only responsible for what's in the headlights. That's how he talked about understanding God's will. I can't respond to what's not in the headlights. That's speculation, but there's stuff I know all the time.
Because it's obvious. And God says, that's where my will for you is. You do that. Just keep giving God our yes. And the passage also asks this question, I think. Does our faith cause obedience? Verse 22. When we look at it, it says there, And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I've written to you in a few words. I said in one message that some people speculate that Hebrews was a sermon. Can you imagine sitting through that sermon? I don't think it took 30 minutes. But he says himself, my, he says my perspective is I've written to you in a few words. But he, he says you need to obey this word of exhortation. Exhortation is comfort and challenge. God speaks to us in Scripture. He came to us in Christ and confirmed His word in the accounts of the prophets. In the Old Testament, and then Jesus Himself, when He came, He affirmed what the Old Testament prophets had said about Him and had said about God and creation and life and its meaning. And so we have a trustworthy account through those who are eyewitnesses. Peter, who was an eyewitness, said this in the, in the scripture. He says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He says, we have a reliable account of what God wants us to know about life and how to live, and therefore he says, live it, obey it. James reminded us that merely hearing God's words falls short of his intent, which is to turn us into doers. He says, don't be forgetful hearers, but be doers of the word. He says, a person that just hears the words like a person that beholds their image in a mirror and goes away and immediately forgets what manner of person he was. He says, we're to be not forgetful hearers, but doers of, of God's word. And I like this quote from A.W. Tozer because James says, too, that we can be self-deceived. He says that a person that uh, hears the word but doesn't do it is, is deceived, self-deceived. And Tozer said about that, of all the forms that deception or of deception, self-deception is the most deadly, and of all deceived persons, the self-deceived are the least likely to discover the fraud. He says, if you are deceiving yourself, it's lots less likely that you will know that you're deceiving yourself. But if we are only hearers of the word with no intent to follow through and practice what it says, he says, you're deceiving yourself. And it's a hard deception to wake up from. So does the, our faith eventuate turn into obedience in our life? And the fourth question we see from this passage is, does our faith make us care? Does it cause us to care? And uh, that should be verse 22, I think. Uh, no, I'm sorry. The last two verses, verses 24 and 25. Greet all those who rule over you. And all the saints, those from Italy, greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen, he says. So he talks about Timothy in the passage, uh, verse 23, I'm sorry. Knowing that Timothy, our brother, has been set free, he, he hopes that he'll come with them uh, to see them with Timothy. But we know that Timothy was a world mission uh, partner. 
He was in the circle of believers who were spreading the gospel. He was timid, fearful. We know that because of things Paul wrote about Timothy. But this timid believer ended up in jail because of his convictions to preach the gospel. So he was imprisoned, and he says he's been released, and I hope to come see you together. And I, I thought about what kind of conviction it would take. We talked about this in our small group time today in Sunday school, which infomercial. Uh, I would encourage you to come. Come to Sunday school. Jonathan, sometimes Ken, occasionally me, will teach a, a good lesson. There's an opportunity for interaction. It's over in the other building. Okay, so the infomercial's over. But I would encourage you to be part of a small group Bible study of some variety, if not that one, another one, because our discipleship is always in process, and we do it with others. So... We, when we were in there, we were talking about the fact that, like, if, if it were so that our faith became that costly, we lived in a kind of culture where it was illegal to express our faith openly and to live it openly. How would it affect us? Would we go into some sort of kind of hiding ourselves, or would we be public about our belief in Christ? I mean, we don't know. It's a theory to us. It's not something that we're currently living out. But I think when we look at the quality of faith, we can say, hmm, it's a little doubtful sometimes that people would be that bold about their faith in Christ based on the amount of boldness they have in a world where they don't have a concern like that whatsoever. I read this quote this week uh, by a writer named David Wells. He says, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy, and his Christ is too common. Or I like how Vance Habner, who always put things on the bottom shelf, put it. Vance Habner says, the problem is that the times are desperate and the church is not. So, is it obvious through our life that we care? That we, we care the way that God cares? Belief like that belief won't get anybody put in prison and the passage here winds up by talking again about biblical leadership and it calls them for the third time rulers <laughs> leaders in the church rulers and we know that when the bible talks about church leadership it actually expresses it this way this is how jesus put it he says you uh jesus called his followers to himself this is following a, an argument that happened between james and john the sons of zebedee because their their mother had approached jesus and said hey when my, when you come into your kingdom i want my one of my sons to sit on your left hand the other on the right hand and jesus after he um you know straightens that part of it out takes the disciples aside and he says look this is the nature of spiritual leadership he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are uh, great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever to be, uh, desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Do you want to be a spiritual leader? The Bible says then you uh, have to be willing to be a servant. You have to be willing to get at the end of the line and let other people go before you. He says that's the nature of spiritual service. Anytime a uh, pastor is exhibiting uh, 
egotistical, egomaniacal behavior, controlling behavior, we know that um, his, he's off the rails. Or anytime any spiritual leader is behaving that way, never see that in church, issues of control or unhealthy patterns of behavior. No, of course you do. That's why we have these kinds of warnings that the Bible says, look, spiritual leadership by the nature of it is servanthood always. And then he calls the people of God this really weird name, saints. He says, you're saints, holy ones. That's the way he brings us in for landing, talking about the saints and urging uh, uh, prayer for them. Greet those who rule over you and greet all the saints. And we know that a saint is holy because Jesus has imparted holiness and we have a holy calling. Be holy because I'm holy, God says. We're holy by decree and by demand. Jesus gives us righteousness based on his cross and he calls us to holy lives. We're forgiven by the thrice holy God. You remember the scene around the throne in the book of Isaiah that the, the seraphim fly around this throne. What do they say? Holy, holy, holy. Holy God, that's who he is. And he has summoned us to reflect him. The saints in Italy greet you, he says. Local churches are in God's heart and he intends for us to belong to one. He, the church in its local form, its expression in a community like this, this is a local church, that's in God's heart, and he expects us to be connected to one and to live out our life in community with all these imperfect people like us. And grace is the most powerful reality at our disposal. John chapter 1 verse 16 says God's kindness to us is grace for every need of grace. Grace upon grace, it says. Grace for every need of grace. Aren't you glad for that? God didn't leave anything out in your life that won't be covered by grace. Something that you need, God says, guess what? I've got that. So prayer and mission, commitment and courage, these mark the church in the, uh, its nearness to Christ's resurrection in the first century. And they ran with this good news so that it advanced into Africa and Europe and Asia and then to the ends of the world, to North America eventually, to every, every end of the, the globe. Their fervency and determination and devotion to Christ accounted for the growth of God's kingdom. And we need that kind of resurgence in North America. Not just showing up sporadically, but living with passion and purpose so that the gospel accompanies you and me into the places that we frequent and the people that we know and encounter. Jesus is Lord, but is he Lord over our priorities? Jesus is Lord, but are we listening to his orders Jesus is Lord, we would say, but does it affect us profoundly? Jesus is Lord, we would say, but are we changed and moved by that profession, that reality? Is it a distant thought or a near motivating reality? One thing we know for certain about God's will is that His will is that you receive eternal life as a free gift. That's where it begins, that we receive His uh, eternal life as a free gift, the very basic scripture that most of us can remember learning very early on is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's where the journey begins is us giving God that yes, yes, saying yes to his uh, offer to cleanse and forgive and pardon and to put our faith in him. And then we begin the journey, and it's a succession of saying yes to him. Let's pray together. God, we're so grateful for how your word is truth and how, God, it often is reminding us of what really matters. It's easy for us in our humanity to forget in our day-to-day things to forget what really is important. And I pray that you'll fill us with your spirit, God. Give us a boldness and a courage to live for you and our families and, and the relationships we have and our, the jobs we hold. God, that everywhere we go, we would uh, be messengers and missionaries living lives of faithfulness. And we pray for you to strengthen us as a congregation of believers. We love you and we need you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand up with us as we sing a song to conclude our service. And also this is an opportunity.